You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. I want to change gears now and get into a topic we discuss pretty frequently here on our program, equity. In the foreword of a recent study on economic equity in the city of Detroit, Wendy Lewis Jackson of the Kresge Foundation's Detroit program wrote the following. The pandemic laid bare inequities 400 years in the making, deeply embedded in the design of our institutions, laws, and systems. Today, at one end of the economic spectrum, the wealthiest increasingly garner the gains, while at the other, low wages are a given. For all but the wealthiest, economic life becomes more and more precarious. For the poor, poverty becomes ever more a trap. For families of color, the burdens are all the more extreme. Those words provide a lot of really important context around the issue of economic equity in our city. And as we dig into the big takeaways from this report, I'm joined by someone who was very closely involved in every step of the work and research that went into it. And she also spends a lot of time thinking about the intersection of race and economic equity. Anika Goss is the CEO of Detroit Future City, and she joins me now. Anika, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. It's also really great to see you in person after, what, uh, almost two years? Almost two years, <laughs> yeah. You look great. Uh, so do you. <laughs> and it's uh, so great to be up here on Mackinac again exactly. with everyone. Yeah. All right, so I want to start here. This report is titled The State of Economic Equity in Detroit, and it's a publication of the Detroit Future Cities Center for Equity, Engagement, and Research. The center was launched prior to the pandemic, but talk about how the events of the last year and a half have demonstrated the need for these kind of concentrated effort on issues that relate to economics and racial equity. I, I, that's a great framing for that, Stephen, uh, because I think you're seeing it and, you know, the thing to keep in mind is that the state of the economic equity report, the data was actually pre-COVID, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It was 2019 data. However, I think what we're finding is that the inequities that we point out in the report <clears throat> manifested themselves during the pandemic, where the we're seeing higher um, vulnerable eviction rates, the entire section on health and health inequities among people of color, the um, education limitations and where that would lead us, the whole care community, whether it's caring for seniors or caring for children, um, all of those things really really played out during the pandemic. And furthermore, the and, and most importantly, the inequities around income mm-hmm. and jobs and employment were most prevalent, right? So we really saw that people were struggling at every level. And were it not for the stimulus resources that some people got, some people didn't, yeah. some people truly barely made it through. Um, we, it, it's, it's really evident that things were not great for everyone prior to the pandemic. Right. And, and I guess uh, maybe this is a, a, an easy question to answer, but I, I do want to ask it. Do you assume that all of those indicators are now worse because of the pandemic? In other words, 
I mean, I mean, all of us know how hard Detroit was hit by the pandemic, not just from a public health perspective, but also from an economic perspective. But, uh, yeah, you know, the, the pandemic doesn't discriminate in terms right. of who, who could get sick. Uh, but did it have the effect of exacerbating those gaps that you had pointed out before we even got to that point? I think it did. I, I really feel like um, particularly... I mean, I think childcare is the biggest example of that, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Because childcare is often categorized as um, a social um, investment that's a, a social but necessary investment to mm -hmm. the economy, but it's certainly an afterthought, right? And I think what we were finding is that people had no ability to work unless they had childcare. Mm -hmm. And so then it became not the, the it, it wasn't even the desire or not, like whether or not you wanted to work, you had no one to watch your two-year-old and four-year-old at home because there was no childcare right. available to them. And that, I think, was, it, show, it really created this dynamic that none of us were really prepared for um, that we would have only seen during this this upheaval mm. and and chaos, and then how that affected families differently, mm. right? And and the inequities between um, families, and even the response to the pandemic was still a very two parent, two point three children response, you know, a very middle upper middle class yes. suburban response, and I really feel like. It became we we were able to finally normalize that these inequities exist, and the kind of response to these inequities had to be has to be much more bold than we've done in previous uh, previous years. Yeah. So so I want to pull out just a couple of numbers from the report that I think just are mind blowing. Um, one is that the median income in Detroit was half. Yeah of what it was in the region, and that the average home value of a white Detroit resident is about $46,000 higher than a home owned by an African American, which I think is maybe an even more important um, statistic because uh, because of the wealth building That's uh, right. that, that home ownership represents in our, in our society. And so... Uh, when you talk about the difference between white and black just in the city of Detroit, it's double, right? That's the right. The gap is double between uh, black and, and white. Um, what are the real-life implications mm -hmm. of those kinds of disparities? Well, I think what we're seeing and what we saw in the 2020 census, um, the neighborhoods that were stabilizing and improving are also those neighborhoods where that are trending upwards with white upper middle class families. Mm -hmm. So these are these the, are the people families moving that are in. moving in. Yeah. And that is truly problematic. It's problematic. There are 11, what we know, um, and, and we're doing some analysis now, um, like now as in like as we speak mm -hmm. right now, so I don't have the data, <laughs> but um, on whether or not there were changes um, between uh, middle class household, middle class neighborhoods in Detroit. Mm -hmm. There were 11 middle class neighborhoods in 2019. And what we know is right now, at least, is that 
uh, four of those neighborhoods have seen increases in population of white upper middle class households. Mm -hmm. And so I think what's really concerning for all of us is the destabilization of the existing middle class neighborhoods and furthermore, um, furthering this trend of concentrating higher wealth white communities in places where that are receiving the most investment and that are most stable. And I think that for us is the most concerning, what we need to be paying attention to, mm-hmm. whether you're white, black, or otherwise. And it doesn't mean that we don't, that, that white upper middle class households aren't welcome. What it means is that white middle class household neighbor and white middle class neighborhoods can't be prioritized. Right, right. So, so I, I have said many times before that I think the most critical role that city government plays is in taking the fruits of new investment in the city, which are always concentrated in you know one area or another, and making sure that they pay benefits to the people in other areas. And I have also always said that I think that we do a worse job of that in Detroit <laughs> than other I, I see in other yeah. cities, yeah. right? Yes. Uh, you know, there should be this uh, idea that, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. It doesn't lift all boats equally, <laughs> but everybody ought to get a little something out of that. And, and I feel like in Detroit, there's too many places that still don't get anything. That's right. It looks, you know, I think part of the problem, I mean, overall, Stephen, from an urban planning point of view, is that there are parts of the city that are so deeply entrenched in disinvestment and poverty, it takes a lot more than the initial benefit Mm -hmm. of a few developments in, in neighborhoods a few miles over. I really think, you know, part in our in a report that we did a few years ago around uh, the state of, um, not the state, but African American middle class mm-hmm. um, uh, in Detroit. Um, one of the things that we were trying to propose and help people think about differently was this idea of uh, near neighbor, near middle class neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Now, generally, these are low income neighborhoods, right. right? Because our middle class, bot- the bottom end of that is so low. Mm-hmm. But that near middle class is exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. That if we can make these investments in our near middle class neighborhoods, it will then have that kind of ripple effect where then you begin to see other, you begin to see investments and stabilization and the connectivity of the fabric of that neighborhood in and around places that traditionally have been destabilized. Yeah, yeah. So, so in some ways, this bumps right up against the idea of this public-private partnership uh, that that is a big part of what's going on in Detroit. So, so yeah. what part of that is not working? I guess is 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 the question. Well, I mean, from one side of it, you could say that the strategic neighborhood fund is working. Is okay because 
that's really been the trigger for the recent increase in white upper middle class right. neighborhoods. Right, right. So if we can really begin to target and think about this using the same models in near middle class, and I don't think this is a new idea. I don't think the city of Detroit would say, aha, yeah. that's it. That's, yeah. I think they're already thinking about it in that way. It's harder. The bigger question, Stephen, the harder question, I think, is not so much um, the the socialization of it. Mm -hmm. This is good work, and we should do this because this is the right thing to do. How do we actually frame this? Yeah. So then it becomes then it it is a good investment. You can get a return on your investment. You're making an investment that can actually have capital access capital flow mm -hmm. in neighborhoods that do not have capital flow and that is a that's a harder private sector question yes. that we are having trouble convincing right now that hopefully we can convince here on the island so so is the pandemic an opportunity in that I, regard i think and not just the pandemic but but this whole new this new normal of um, racial understanding yeah, and healing, sure, right? Sure. That we need to be thinking about everything differently. Um, and, and the pandemic allows us the flexibility to slow down and be able to say, we can make these investments and take what we believe mm -hmm. is a bigger risk that can actually have enormous benefit at the neighborhood level. Yeah, so, so I wanna talk about some, something else in this report. Around 500 community stakeholders were interviewed for this report. I, I would yeah. love to give uh, for you to give us a, just the broad strokes around some of the things that uh, you uncovered in those conversations. You know, it was a great summer. It was the pan It was in the middle of the pandemic, like in the first summer. <laughs> You're not going to be Summer 2020. <laughs> no, they were show. People are at home, so they were showing up to Zoom calls right. <laughs> or calling in on their cell phone to these events, and they had a lot to say. Yeah, they had a lot to say. We also talked to about 50 kids between 12 and 18 huh. that also participated in this, that also had a lot to say. They, and, and, and how they articulated, so for health, for example, and this is what's sort of trending today on social media, um, we talked about what the stakeholders said, and it was that they wanted um, a, a, an acknowledgement of previous discrimination mm -hmm. in care hmm. from the health sector. Oh wow! And they also boy, what would that look what like? What would that look like? Huh? And they also really wanted, um, and and so like when we are talking to folks, they wanted us to be able to measure these things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so then think about what would that look like to be able to measure whether a hospital is is actively acknowledging previous harm right. that they've done in care. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And then what they were also really concerned, what they were also really, really wanting to do is to make sure at a very basic level, and this one really kind of got to me, that there is opportunity for everyone to succeed in Detroit. Mm -hmm. That you don't feel like you have to be three steps behind, five steps behind, because you grew up in a certain neighborhood. Right. That you have every opportunity to build wealth. 
right? Mm -hmm. Every opportunity to get that good job. Yeah. And I, you know, how we measure for that is um, it's a longitudinal study, right? Sure. Like we're playing the long game here. Yeah. This is not, we're not going to be able to tell you in 2022 whether or not this is happening, but we need to be organizing the path for that right now. And that was really the expectation of these stakeholders. Huh. They got that. And they got that. Yeah, yeah. So, so how do you feel uh, community and business leaders ought to be using this report? What's, yeah. what's the way we make this into action? Well, I think one of the things that we're starting to see um, that I'm excited about is um, this, this uh, even if it's just baby steps, thinking about opportunity jobs mm -hmm. um, and higher wage jobs with or without a degree mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, in, in different sectors, right? Like, I really believe that the private sector, the expectation is that manufacturing and automotive is there for the opportunity jobs. Right. You go and get a factory job, that's an opportunity job. That's the way it's been for 100 years in this community. But what we're seeing now, we're seeing trends where financial institutions and the private sector are increasing their, their wage for their base level, entry level jobs. Hmm. And, and those jobs are the real opportunity jobs. Yeah. Those are the ladder jobs, right? You can start as a teller in the bank and if you're starting as a teller in the bank making $20 an hour, yeah, yeah. you know, what Ally Bank and Bank of America did, you can get into management because then you have, you, it, it changes everything. Sure. You can afford your housing. You can afford your transportation. You can stabilize your household, right? Mm -hmm. You can actually, you can reduce your cost burden. All of those things are actually directly connected to your wage and you have the room and the flexibility to be really good at your job because you're not stressed right. out about what's happening right. at home. Yeah. So then you can get that promotion right. and move up to a manager. And move up, yeah. Okay, Anika Goss, it's always really great <laughs> to talk to you. I feel like we could always end up talking for like four I hours know, about absolutely. these things. <laughs> but I do have to let you go. Okay. But I really appreciate uh, you coming by for Detroit today. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Yeah. It's my pleasure. Okay. okay. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to hear from two reporters who have covered more than a few of these policy conferences on Mackinac Island about what's actually getting done at the conference this year what the big subjects are, and what attendees aren't talking enough about. Stay with us for more Detroit Today.